The time is now. Volume 4, Episode 65. This is Employment Law Now. I am Mike Schmidt, your host. We started off this two-part episode yesterday, pitting employee-side lawyer Hope Porty against employer-side lawyer Jeremy Glenn to talk about a whole host of employment law issues. They were gracious enough to come back for a second session of additional questions. I hope you find this part two just as interesting. So uh, we are back here with Hope Porty, uh, Labor and Employment Partner at Spivak Lipton LLP, uh, representing the employee and union side of things for the Great Debate 2020. Uh, and in the other corner remains Jeremy Glenn uh, here at Cozen O'Connor in our Labor and Employment Group. Appreciate you both coming back. Uh, it sounded like you were just getting warmed up in our last session, and uh, here we are to... Uh, to talk about some other real interesting issues. You both feeling okay? You still uh, friendly with each other after the first part? No one's answering. Look at that. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Hope may have landed a few blows, but I'm ready to go a couple more rounds. <laughs> All right, then here we go. And I do note for the record that, that Hope did not answer that question. Um, <laughs> Always a fan of Jeremy's. There we go. There we go. Uh, all right. So let's get into a couple of other uh, perspectives that I'd love to get from you both. Uh, so one of the things that we've seen in the last couple of years, particularly on the international front, uh, some other countries have been playing with labor law regulations when it comes to what's referred to as email curfews. So limiting employers' ability to uh, either email employees or to expect responses to emails, uh, essentially trying to instill this work-life balance from a government regulation standpoint. Uh, and I want to start with uh, Hope with you on this one. Do you think that an email curfew type regulation would be a good thing here? Well, I think it's really going to depend on the industry and the workplace culture and the management practices to know whether or not an email curfew would be beneficial and realistic. I probably would put this in the category one of those things that it may not be necessary to have the government you know, regulate this and to impose an email curfew. Um, there are certainly some employees, you know, employees like us, lawyers, um, where I don't think we would really be able to service our clients in the way that we want to, nor in the way that they want us to, um, if there was an email curfew. And that probably applies to a lot of people who work in a personal services industry. Um, the one area where I think it could be beneficial is if, you know, you have hourly workers um, and they have managers or supervisors who may be encroaching, you know, on their off the clock time by sending out an email here and there and then it becomes a few emails and the managers think oh come on it's just a couple of emails but yet that's considered compensable work time um, so it could provide some 
you know, better definition and boundaries between, you know, work time and, and not work time. Um, but I do think it, it could be uh, a little too restrictive to have this coming from, you know, the government. I think I'd probably rather see this done by employers based on, you know, their workflow and their workplace culture to know what would really work best. Jeremy, any thoughts? I agree with Hope that this would be an example of too much regulation from the government instilling an email curfew about when communications can or cannot happen. But I'll take it in a slightly different direction. Yeah, I was going to say, I didn't hear Hope specifically say that she would never think it was a good thing as a, as a blanket proposition. I, I may have cast her words a little bit more broadly than she Everything uttered. Never. <laughs> but I, I think from the standpoint of limiting communications, we have to beware that we're also limiting necessary flexibility for certainly exempt staff it may be very well that a person has caregiving responsibilities at home that mean they don't get to the email or the PowerPoint until 10 p.m. at night. So imposing a curfew could actually hinder their ability to do that. And, and second, I think it is instilled in us from an early age that achieving your ultimate goals is based on giving as much as you can, whether in terms of preparation or performance, so I think there's a little bit of American spirit that might be different from a European spirit in terms of if I'm willing to work 18 hours a day, it's because there will be a reward for me economically or professionally. And again, I don't think the government needs to be in the area of regulating. As Hope mentions, it's industry-specific and employer-specific. Okay. I think my worker stress radar just went off the charts with Jeremy's comments about people of the American spirit and wanting to work 18 <laughs> hours a day. <laughs> I mean, I think this, <laughs> this is actually something that many of us might see as a problem with our culture that we are, we think that, you know, what it means to have a good work ethic is that you are going to work at all costs um, and sacrifice everything um, to try to get ahead. Um, and I think that that is actually not a good thing. I don't think it's a good thing for workers. I don't think it's a good thing for employers that, you know, trying to find a way to have practices and policies in place that will encourage work-life balance and make those 18-hour days uh, kind of the exception and not the rule. Did you save any time for rebuttal, Jeremy? I, I, I like the aspiration of that statement, and I agree with it on a personal level, but I think this, from the standpoint of a government regulation on the individual drive, it wouldn't be well served in this area. So let's uh, move to a different area um, where we're talking about uh, over or under regulation. You know, last session in some of the first questions, we talked a lot about unions, the need for unions still, unequal bargaining power between employers and employees. And what we've seen in the last few years more broadly uh, are a lot of traditional rules uh, that have been around for decades in some cases being challenged by more modern platforms such as social media. So I want to talk about social media for a moment and get both of your insights on that. A lot of times we're getting questions both from employees, certainly in Hope's case, uh, as well as companies, uh, Jeremy, in, in your case and in mine, about what can we do if we don't like what an employee is saying about us on social media? And so here's the next question for both of you. And Jeremy, I'll start with you this time. 
should employees be able to say anything they want about employers over social media? No, no. Social media creates a forum for communication for sure, but that forum also needs to be regulated by principles of truthfulness and accuracy. And, And I would add to that protected areas of speech. For example, the National Labor Relations Act protects individuals' collective communication when they're speaking about wages, hours, terms, and conditions of employment. But there has to be a boundary over which the communication cannot cross, and that would be into areas that promote violence or create um, uh, stigmatizing social reputation damage or, or reveal confidential information about other employees or even trade secret information about the company. So it can't be an unfiltered, unlimited allowance. Um, and again, th- this is not a First Amendment protection issue because a private employer isn't bound by the First Amendment, but they are bound by laws like the National Labor Relations Act and, and anti-whistleblower statutes. So there have to be some limits. Oh, should employees be able to say anything they want about employers over social media? Well, I wouldn't say they should be allowed to say anything, but I certainly think that employees should be able to speak relatively freely through social media as long as they're not disseminating confidential information or proprietary information or violating any reasonable code of conduct, such as, you know, what Jeremy mentioned about, you know, engaging in any kind of violent, um, you know, violent conduct or promoting any kind of violence, um, doing anything that would be in violation of the anti-discrimination, anti-harassment policy of an employer. But otherwise, employees, as they always have been, should be allowed to do and say what they want when they are off duty. Um, And I think social media has just replaced a lot of the conversations that we used to have in person. Um, And as uh, I think you both noted, there is actually a lot of protection for employees in this area under the National Labor Relations Act, because oftentimes when employees are talking about employers, um, they are saying something that would be considered protected concerted activity, that they're engaging collectively for the mutual aid and protection of their co-workers by perhaps complaining about a workplace policy. And I think in this area, it's um, oftentimes employers are surprised by some of the results of those cases about how much freedom employees do have to express themselves on social media. So let's make this a, oh, go ahead, Jeremy. Thanks, thanks. I would say social media is no longer the new flavor of the month insofar as what might have been a headline-grabbing Facebook or MySpace post from 10 years ago, I think is filtered now more in the eyes and ears of listeners. By the same token, those companies that rely on positive buzz through their social media fora are more active in it. And so to some extent, the one-off disparaging comment by a former employee has less damage than it used to, and companies are more inclined to be actively responding and and reacting to that than they used to be. So let's broaden this a little bit from social media uh, and expand it to sort of all off-premises, off-work kinds of activities. Uh, We talked a little bit about the at-will employment concept, uh, which, you know, with obvious limitations that exist uh, under the law, both statutory and common law, 
uh, employees can be terminated at will and employees can leave uh, at will. So as long as it's not a discriminatory or retaliatory reason that violates the law, companies generally have the right to terminate at will employees. Should employers, within against that backdrop, should employers be able to hire or fire people because of what they do off premises and off the clock simply because they don't like it as a company? Hope. This will not surprise anyone. No, I do not think that they should be able to. Employers should be able to, you know, depend on or rely upon what people do outside of work to make employment decisions. I mean, there is. You know, there has to be a boundary between people's personal lives and their work lives. Um, and unless, you know, I could see certain situations involving perhaps public sector employees where those employees um, are performing a public service. And so they can take on, you know, it look like that they're serving as a role model. And if they engage in certain conduct, it could undermine the public service. For example, a teacher who um, perhaps engages in some off-duty misconduct, that wouldn't be the type of conduct that you would want young children exposed to. Um, but I think otherwise that this is really um, an employer's way to really go way beyond what, uh, what discretion it has to make decisions about, you know, employers, employees and their conduct. Um, so, I don't think it should be relied upon and I don't think I know there's some, you know, situations out there and there are some state laws being passed kind of going back to some of the earlier topics we were discussing to try to limit employers having access to people's, you know, social media uh, websites and passwords so they can kind of investigate more what employees are, have done, you know, outside of work. Would you take the same sort of position uh, if we weren't talking about you know, maybe a controversial kind of off-premises, uh, off-work activity and something that a company doesn't like. So let's say I'm, a, I'm an employer and I hate the game of basketball. I find out that my employees play basketball over the weekend. I don't want to hire them just because of that. Should I be allowed to do that or not? I mean, I don't think so. And I think also I don't even see why – I mean – it just seems very shaky ground for employers to start to get into because I think, you know, how are they going to decide what, what rules are they using? What criteria are they using to, to determine what is appropriate off-duty misconduct or, you know, suitable off-duty misconduct or off-duty conduct and not suitable off-duty, you know, conduct that I would want or not want my employees engaging in. And I think that, you know, as we often talk about in the discrimination harassment area, to the extent that employers are making very subjective decisions, you know, that can become, you know, very complicated, and I think very problematic for employers, I think, for the most part, unless it's something, you know, very egregious, um, something in the public eye, that employers should not be, I mean, they should not be conducting that kind of inquiry or investigation. And, they should not be looking for that kind of information to make employment decisions. I think it's a great point. I, I, I totally agree with you that, you know, you start when you deal with my kind of ridiculous fact patterns, you start going down potentially a slippery slope uh, that, that, you know, really uh, causes problems. But, but Jeremy staying with that ridiculous fact pattern for a second, uh, as long as I am not differentiating certain basketball players from others because of the traditional protected classes, should a company be able to, the boss of a company, the founder of a company, be able to say, hey, I don't want to hire you because you play basketball on the weekends? So as an employment lawyer, 
Mike, I would always be looking for what is the legitimate non-discriminatory business reason for that decision? Because you have to be aware of the fact that the law protects against adverse impacts. In other words, hiring or employment decisions that aren't specifically targeted to exclude a minority group, but have the effect of doing so. So I, as an employment counselor, would direct you to probe what are the underlying business reasons driving that decision. And then I would help you find a way to articulate that in a way that protected you from the adverse impact claim. And more generally speaking, I counsel employers, let's focus on the performance and behavior in the workplace, because that's what impacts our business and its success. Let's stay out of our employees' personal lives, because they're all messy. We're all imperfect. Let's focus on the workplace. So when it comes to conduct off the job, my advice is... If it's lawful, in most states, you cannot take action because of that. In most states, there's a statute that protects lawful off-duty conduct. But if it has an impact on the workplace, then it can be considered. For example, a hot topic before COVID-19 was the legalization of marijuana. So use of recreational marijuana is legalized in Illinois this year. Still illegal on the federal side. (laughs) and yet still illegal on the federal side. So this sort of imperfect compromise has been employers cannot terminate employees for using recreational marijuana outside of work, but they can test them. And if they test positive for having it in their system, even if not under the influence, they can terminate them from their job. So we have this imperfect resolution But back to my point, if it's lawful conduct outside the workplace, leave it alone until it impacts performance or behavior in the workplace. So let's get uh, away from the conduct aspect of this. I'm an employer. It's my company. uh, And I can't stand, Jeremy, the, uh, the, the ties that you wear every day to work. I can't stand them. Whether it's the color, the pattern, I just can't stand your ties. I want to fire you because I can't stand your ties. Should I be able to do that? Right now, under an employment at will doctrine, if that is the honest reason and it's not a subterfuge or. No, stop with the legal blah, blah, blah. Assume that I'm telling the truth, that I literally cannot stand your ties. That is why I'm firing you. Should I be able to do that? Yes. Hope? Well, should is a tricky word. (laughs) You know what? I can't get simple answers. That's why we have to do this in two parts instead of one podcast. I'm teasing you. Hope, why should I not? Why should I not be able to very simply terminate Jeremy because I cannot stand his ties? Well, it's completely arbitrary. But I mean, if you're asking, would he have a legal claim? No. Um, But we would look for one to try to protect Jeremy and get him a really nice package. (laughs) And I'm sure, Jeremy, you'd be one of, if not the first lawyers that Jeremy would run to were I to fire him for that reason. Um, One of the uh, uh, interesting topics that have come up uh, somewhat recently is this issue of telecommuting. And it's really uh, come up even more now because of these, you know, quarantines and stay at home orders that's requiring so many more people to telework than ever before. The issue came up um, in the disability and accommodation area. Uh, And there is a wide divergence to some extent, depending on the jurisdiction as to whether telecommuting 
uh, is a reasonable accommodation for purposes of the Americans with Disabilities Act and, and uh, equivalent state laws. Once we are back to work post-COVID-19, do you think it will be easier for employees to claim telecommuting as a reasonable accommodation for disability-related reasons just simply by the fact that we're all doing it now for the most part? Hope, what do you think? I think it is going to be very difficult for employers to not offer telecommuting options as a accommodation for a disability. As you just noted, there are jobs that no one could have conceived of that would have been able to have been done at home. I and mean, even the workers wouldn't necessarily have been able to see their way to doing their work at home. And now because of the situation we're in, you know, people have been very creative. Um, and I think that, uh, if faced with a request, employers are going to have to search uh, long and hard to find a reason why that person is not going to be able to continue working at home or to, in the future, work at home using the same, you know, equipment under the same circumstances. I, I think she's right. The, the demonstrated success of teleworking in many jobs and in many industries means that it, it it may well be a reasonable accommodation in far more situations than it ever was before. So yes, in that context, absolutely. It will be far more prevalent as a request and far more often granted now. Well, but just, yeah, I was going to say, could you see companies saying, you know, look, we, we, they're teleworking now, telecommuting now because we were forced to have them do this. It doesn't mean that our operations or the role that they're performing is really being done the way it should be. Um, but yes, they are teleworking, they are telecommuting now and doing this by requirement, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're performing their essential job functions or performing their functions the way that they should be performed under normal circumstances. What about that argument? I put a little different spin on it, but you're on the right track. I think right now it's a shared experience. Entire work teams are working remotely. Entire offices are working remotely. So to compare this situation to one a year from now when just a single member of a team asks for the accommodation to work remotely, it's a different dynamic. Um, so this shared experience is part of what's making it seem more possible but I do think it remains a case-by-case -case analysis for every job and every individual in the context and the time at which it arises. All right. Um, so I want to uh, get to a couple of agree or disagree statements. Uh, this one for you both. Uh, and Jeremy, I'll stay with you to start. Um, agree or disagree. Once we are all back to work, uh, this whole coronavirus pandemic will make for better employer-employee relations. Agree. Employees will have a better appreciation for the stability of a paycheck and an opportunity for work. And employers, I hope, will have a better appreciation for the value of their human resources and the uh, connectivity that comes from returning to work. And I love when I get a question where Hope is just like leaning to the front of her seat, just waiting for Jeremy to finish so she can go. Uh, once we are all back to work, Hope, this whole coronavirus pandemic will make for better employer-employee relations. Agree or disagree? I'd say disagree. Um, Circle I gets the square for those old Hollywood, <laughs> Hollywood squares buffs. Dating myself, but go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, as always, I appreciate uh, Jeremy's optimism 
And there's certainly workplaces where I'm sure employees will demonstrate their appreciation for how employers were able to ensure people could work remotely and to continue, you know, getting the work done. Um, so I, you know, I do think that there, there are always some exceptions, but I really think that what we have seen is that employees feel and not only just feel that employees are very, very vulnerable and that, you know, most of us work paycheck to paycheck. And when we have an economic crisis, like the economic crisis that we're in now, that workers are the low hanging fruit. I mean, the first thing that employers started to think about is yes, they were thinking about whether or not they could transition people to remote work. But I think the other thought was how many of these people can I lay off or furlough so I can start to reduce my payroll. And it was really because the federal government, you know, acted in this area um, by passing CARES and FFCRA to provide a lot of workplace protections for the workers and also create incentives for employers to maintain people on the payroll that, you know, we've seen some workers um, be able to retain their jobs. I think within the absence of those two pieces of legislation, I think we would have seen even more workers um, who are unemployed, which seems incredible looking at the numbers these days. Um, and I also think for essential workers, you know, the frontline workers who are going out there, you know, every single day, you know, we talked about this earlier, that there is a lot of frustration and resentment about how little employers have done to protect those workers. Um, and they're the ones who are making sure this country runs by ensuring that we get all the basic services that we need. And they're the ones and, you know, look at what's going on with healthcare workers. You know, they're complaining about not having PPE and, you know, all of the other kind of tangible things they need to do their job. And there's also concerns that the healthcare workers who are speaking out, going back to one of the topics we were talking about earlier about employee free speech, that we're seeing healthcare workers, doctors being terminated when they have, you know, gone to the press and talked about, you know, conditions at hospitals. So, you know, I do think, again, that there is a little bit of a disconnect here between how employers think that they, you know, how well they think they've been responding to this crisis with respect to their workforce, and how workers really feel. I mean, I'm hearing just getting so many calls from so many different sectors about how frustrated and vulnerable employees are feeling, um, and that their employers weren't aren't looking out for them necessarily. Um, and I, I respect your, your information, Hope, but I want to help restore some optimism for you by saying that the employers who really care about how this impacts their workers and who want to do everything they can before layoffs, those are the ones who call their employment lawyers. And let's just say I've been very, very busy the last three weeks. Dozens of employers calling to say, we want to do the right thing by our employees and we want to communicate with them. So I think, of course, you're going to hear in the situations where that didn't happen. I'm hearing from the people who want to make it happen. And I think on balance, it's going to trend toward the, we did everything we could with the best information we had. Now let's dust ourselves off and move forward together. Hence the reason for my optimism. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice thought, but, you know, it doesn't pay the rent or the mortgage for those workers who are, you know, quickly laid off and find themselves without a job and not able to get on the phone with unemployment um, 
or, you know, all the other myriad of situations that workers are, are facing and trying to make their way through this crisis. Okay, so listeners everywhere, let's prove hope wrong. Call Mike Schmidt, call Jeremy Glenn right now, and we'll help you work through this together. And I fully endorse that message. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So before I ask um, our last collective question for both of you to opine on, I wanted to um, get a question out to each of you. Um, I do go through uh, viewer and fan mail uh, almost every day here at Employment Law Now Central, uh, and it's it's great to get the feedback from our listeners to this podcast. And so I have a couple of letters with uh, with questions that uh, our listeners would love to have had the opportunity to pose to an employee side attorney and a company side attorney. So uh, I'm going to share my viewer mail with both of you for these uh, two questions. First, I'll go uh, to you, Hope, on this one. One of our listeners uh, asks whether you agree with the following statement. There is no true need for employment laws in the United States because if you are truly qualified and if you still bring unique value to your company, the company will not have any incentive to get rid of you. Well, I do not agree with that statement. Um, I think that there is a real need for employment laws. Um, and I think, you know, people benefit in all different ways and coming from coming at it from different perspectives, no matter what their job may be. But, you know, we have the discrimination and harassment laws. Um, and we have seen, you know, based on, the Me Too movement, what's happened in the last few years regarding revelations about sexual harassment, that even when we did have laws in place, that there was not enough being done in the workplace to eliminate or minimize that type of behavior. And as a result, we're having, you know, strengthened laws, and we're having increased trainings. And, you know, hopefully that is starting to see the decline of that type of behavior in the workplace. And I know the work that both, you know, the two of you are doing, Mike and Jeremy, with respect to your clients, um, doing trainings and improving policies and focusing more human resources, um, attention on those issues has been very important, but I think it's been driven a lot by what's been going on, you know, with the fact that we have those laws out there. Um, and I think also, you know, paid sick leave, um, you know, the only reason we're seeing states enact paid sick leave laws is because there are so many workers who did not have the ability to take time off for work for when they were sick. Um, same with family leave. You know, again, a lot of employees do not have access um, to time off if they need to take care of a family member. And I fear without those laws that we would not see those policies and benefits still being you know, implemented by employers. So I think the employment less laws are necessary to create a floor of workplace protections, and then employers can always, you know, enhance those benefits um, and tailor workplace policies to fit their particular workforce. But getting rid of the employment laws altogether is, I do not think is going to help anyone. Makes sense to me. Um, Jeremy, I've got this letter from uh, uh, my, my pile of fan mail here. This one's directed to you. Do you agree with the following statement? 
Companies owe an obligation to society to increase the minimum wage to $15 an hour or higher. I disagree with that statement, Mike. I think companies owe an obligation to provide their workers with a safe workplace, and they have to balance against that the obligation to create a market for their products or services and to do so at a price point that's affordable for consumers. So, no, I don't believe there's an obligation to pick any particular number. I think that this is one of those minimum labor standards that ought to be set by the government and set a level playing field across jurisdictions. Um, but for each individual company, the question is really driven by what is the market for my goods and products and what does the market require that I pay in compensation for the workforce to deliver that. Terrific. That makes sense as well. Uh, interesting that you both disagreed with the statement posed by our listener. Um, so I've, if I could just go back just to that question, because the one yeah. thing I think is so interesting, the question that you posed to me about whether or not there's a true need for employment laws, because if you're truly qualified, you're not going to have any issue. Again, going back to calls that I get all of the time, I get so many calls from star performers who started in that job with so much of Jeremy's kind of optimism um, and enthusiasm and the company thinks that they just got the best possible employee that they ever could have found for that position. And all of a sudden, who knows what reason? I mean, the business can change. The employee didn't end up performing the way the company thought. Um, You know, all sorts of things can happen during the course of the employment relationship. But now I'm getting a call from that same employee because things didn't quite work out um, the way that that person thought that it was going to work out when they first started the job. And so I always say to people who think that they may not need these protections because, you know, they're never going to have to, they've never had a problem or they've never needed any kind of, of any of these benefits that are being passed by state laws and federal laws. Um, and they've never been discriminated against, or they may not think that they're someone who could be a victim of that kind of behavior. Those are the exact same people who end up filing lawsuits at some point in time because, you know, things do happen and um, we do need those, those basic protections. And you kind of have to put yourselves in the shoes of other people sometimes to see why we need um, these laws. Makes sense to me. Um, Thank you, Hope. So I've got one last question uh, for both of you. This has been uh, really terrific. Um, One last question, and I'll give you each an opportunity to sort of close with this. If you could change one and only one thing about employment law, what would it be? Jeremy, we'll start with you. So, Mike, I think much has been lost in the clarity of employment laws by the involvement of this patchwork of state and local jurisdictions. And it's further complicated by the um, sort of political necessity to create more words when fewer words could do the job. So I would love to see a national consortium of human resource professionals who were charged with revising and updating the employment laws to match the 21st century workplace. Because I think too many of our employment laws were either post-Depression or pre-World War II era, and they have not been able to keep up with the changing workplace. Okay, Hope, if you could change one and only one thing about employment law, what would that be from your standpoint? 
Well, I would choose to change the laws regarding voluntary recognition of unions. I think that it needs to be, there needs to be a process in place that makes it easier for groups of employees who organize collectively and want to engage with the employer um, as partners, that they should be voluntarily recognized by the employer rather than going through a cumbersome election process that often um, leads to an anti-union campaign and actually ends up creating a lot of dissension in the workplace. So I would propose that there'd be a law whereby unions would be voluntarily recognized upon a 50% showing through, you know, what is often referred to as card check, where if people, if the union leaders were able to provide a petition with signatures from at least 50% of the workforce that the employer would, would be required to recognize that group as the collective bargaining representative. Well, it's a great, uh, you think that'll ever happen? One can hope. No pun intended. <laughs> I love that. What a great finish. And even though she didn't comment on my wish I could change one thing, I do think Hope has identified a change that would increase the overall union representation in the United States of America. It, it would raise concerns that need to be further discussed about what it means to have a free choice and, a, and how we adapt the law that calls for secret ballot elections to protect that free choice. But um, that's a conversation you and I can continue to have the next time we get together at an industry meeting. Hope I'm going to give you the last word on that. Well, I think through this conversation with both of you, but in particular with Jeremy, I mean, I think one thing that comes through in the conversation is that I think we would all benefit from having more of a partnership between labor and management and people may disagree about the structure of that partnership but it sounds like there's not enough communication between management and the workforce and that if there was an opportunity where you could have real discussion or a real dialogue to talk about issues of concern by the workers things that management needs that we could really advance you know, the, you know, American workforce and have a better place for, for the workers and have a more efficient operation from management side. So I think there's some kind of a common interest there. It's just how we get there, of course, <laughs> is, the, is the difficult part. But I, I do think we have that shared goal. I think that is an awesome way to end, uh, very much the way we began with our part one of this uh, great debate 2020, talking about uh, people coming together, people bringing their ideas together to accomplish uh, goals that should be accomplished to help everybody. Um, so this, I really appreciate this. This has been terrific. Uh, Hope Porty and Jeremy Glenn, uh, you're both actually still standing after all this. I mean, you're, you're really actually sitting, but um, there has been some areas of agreement. Uh, there have been some punches landed throughout some of these questions, but you both seem to be in, in terrific shape and uh, continue to be terrific lawyers, great people, and great friends. I really appreciate you both hopping on and talking for a couple of episodes here about some interesting employment law and HR issues. Hope, thanks uh, so much. Great to speak with you again. And uh, Jeremy, same with you. And uh, let's do this again. Thanks. Be well. Stay safe. Bye-bye. Well, 
that was great. We're definitely going to do that again. Maybe send me some emails, send me some uh, questions, topics that you'd want for our next great debate of 2020. Uh, Until the next time, thank you so much for listening. Stay safe and well, and I hope all of your labor is productive.